welcome to the Thankful Homemaker podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from Thankful Homemaker, and I'm so glad to be with you today. I've had a bit of a break from our time in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. I took a little break over the summer, but I am so thankful to pick it back up again. This next section we're working through, on the it's going to be on the Lord's Prayer, and we are now in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. It's a long one, and it's one that I personally have always wanted to study through. And let me tell you, from all that time off, It really took me a bit to discipline myself to sit down and get to this episode. I don't know what that was about, but, and and also I think it's because the passage was long. It was a bit overwhelming to me at first, and I was determining how to break it down and what to do with it because it is so long, and I didn't want to break it down into two episodes. I really wanted to keep this into one, and then I just came back to how I've worked through each episode in this series, one verse at a time. So we're going to do that today. Bear with me. It's long. You can take a pause, come back to me. Thankfully, usually those podcast apps hold on to where you left off. And we are also going to learn so much about how to pray from these verses. I'm super thankful you're here. This episode, again, it is not exhaustive by any means, but I will put some helpful resources in the main show notes at the blog if you want to work through it a bit more on your own. You can find the whole series on the Sermon on the Mount at my home on the web at thankfulhomemaker.com, and it's under the Christian Living tab on my main menu bar. You can also follow along on Spotify if you're a Spotify user, and then I set up a playlist for this whole series there too, so they are all in one place to find there too. So we are on episode 127. I've titled it A Proper Pattern for Prayer. And we're working through Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Let me begin by reading through the whole text today. As usual, I'm reading from the ESV version. And again, it's Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and we, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So last time together in this series, we covered our giving And we moved on from our time in Matthew chapter 5 and started in Matthew chapter 6, covering just those first four verses on giving. 
we talked about how we were all tempted to outward religion, but how it must be inward from the heart and pure and living to please an audience of one, capital O there. It's a battle and one that we all share together in as believers. We talked about how we need to continually seek the Lord's help as we give or do or help or whatever that righteous deed may be to seek the Lord first and ask him to help us to seek his glory as the only reason. He must be our single focus and we can't do this on our own in our flesh, but we need the help of the spirit at work in us. So today, as we begin these verses, we start with another warning to not be like the hypocrites. We don't want to do our righteous deeds to be seen by men, and this includes our prayer life. Martin Lloyd-Jones started off his commentary. It's really his studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's that book that I recommend everybody should have on their bookshelf as they go through this. But it's his, his sermons, really, that he did on this section. And he went through it in a way that I've never really heard it taught before. He shared how we can fully miss the entire point and the teaching of these verses. So I don't want to do that, and I don't want you to do that. So I want to start with some quotes from his sermon on this section. He shared that we we often can read this text as just exposing the Pharisees as hypocrites, that we're just seeing this as a person who is calling attention to themselves. And he says when we do this, we miss how this is relevant to us and the whole point of the teaching. He states that the main point is the terrible effects of sin on the human soul, and especially sin in the form of self and of pride. He shares that this text shows us how our sin follows us into the very presence of God. Let me quote him here. He says, nothing is quite so fallacious as to think of sin only in terms of actions. And as long as we think of sin only in terms of things actually done, we fail to understand it. This essence of the biblical teaching on sin is that it is essentially a disposition. It is a state of the heart. He continues, he says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in its rags and in the gutters of life. Like he's given an example here. We look at a drunkard, poor fellow, and we say, there is sin, that is sin. But that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of it, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there upon his knees in the very presence of God. Even there is self intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurable about himself, and really to be worshiping himself rather than God. This, not the other, is the true picture of sin. He continues, he says, the other is sin, of course, but there you do not see it at its acme. You you do not see it in its essence, or to put it in another form. If you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and his activities, the thing to do is not to go to the dregs or the gutters of life. If you really want to know something about Satan, go away to that wilderness where our Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. That is the true picture of Satan, where you see him tempting the very Son of God. And he repeats himself here again. He says, sin is something that follows us even into the very presence of God, that this is our Lord's instruction to Christian people, not to the non-Christian. It's his warning to those who have been born again. Even they have to be careful, lest in their prayers and devotions, they become guilty of this hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And just a last few thoughts to hold on here to from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones before we dig into this text. He shared that when we pray with our attention focused more on people thinking more of us, 
or maybe when we're even praying in private and they are just, they become meaningless words. We're just praying because we know it's what we should do, but our heart isn't in it. And we don't mean what we say. He stated that we're at that point, we are ushering sin into the presence of God. The doctor stated it this way. He said that we picked up a parasite of sin and brought it as its host into the very presence of God. And he reminds us that's how powerful sin is. And in sharing this, I, I know, friends, that we have all had hypocritical prayers. My hand is raised here. It's those moments when we're more aware of the audience around us than the God we are praying to. And, and what we're doing when that happens is we're carrying the parasite of sin into the very presence of God. He reminds us that if that doesn't convince you of the power of sin, nothing will. So this is so relevant to us. Is if you remember nothing else from this time together, please remember part of that, at least that, that last point that, that we don't want to bring our sin into the very presence of God. So today we're going to walk through together a wrong way to pray. Actually, I want to go back on that. It, it's relevant because we're probably not, this is where I wanted to get to, and I forgot this point here because this is important, because we're not those people that are probably standing on a street corner praying out loud in front of others. And this hits home right where we live and within our homes and within our church families. So today we're going to walk through together a wrong way to pray or a false way and a right way or a true way. And Jesus is going to help us to see both in this text we go through. And then from then we're going to move into the model that Jesus gives us for praying in, in what we know as the Lord's Prayer. So in, in these verses today, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, we have a lot to cover today. This is, I already shared, it's going to be a bit longer episode. I wanted to cover it, this next part in, on prayer specifically in one episode. Next month, we talk about fasting. So as we dig in, let me start by reading just the first two verses that start our time today. So I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So our verse there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 starts off with the word when, when you pray, not if you pray. So it's assumed as believers, we are going to be a, a people that, that pray. That is what we're known for. We also need to know that when he's talking about here of the, the position that we're praying, that really doesn't matter whether you're standing or sitting or kneeling, but it, it's, it's, we're getting here to the heart attitude of the one who's praying. And the Greek word here for pray is, I'm going to totally botch this, but it's like prosukami, prosukami. And it's broken down, totally botched that word. But basically, this is what you need to know there. It's broken down into the first part of pros, P-R-O-S. And it means seeking God's face, directly approaching him. And it also conveys being before God. So it would include adoration and devotion and worship, this word for prayer. And then our second part of this Greek word for prayer there, it means to entreat and request. It's defined as a technical term for invoking a deity. So prayer, my friend, it is simply coming before the Lord to worship him and adore him and to seek his face and ask him for help and guidance and wisdom, to seek his forgiveness and to give him thanks. As believers, we have access to God through the shed blood of Jesus to come to him anytime and as often as we desire to. 
So let's just look at what is a hypocrite. I know it's a term we all hear all the time, right? And it's interesting though, in this text, Jesus doesn't call out specifically the Pharisees as we've had that in the past, but he tells us not to be like the hypocrites. A hypocrite defined here in the Greek is it's an actor or a pretender. They put on a mask and they pretend to be something they aren't. Jesus's strongest words were towards the hypocrites. Our good God, he abhors hypocrisy. We're being hypocritical when we're praying, when we forget who we're praying to, or when we're more focused on pleasing others than pleasing God. Maybe we're praying to to impress the audience in our midst where we're praying. Maybe it's our small group or at the dinner table, or maybe we're drawing attention to ourselves and not God. Maybe we're trying to sound holier than we are and use big words. We seem to be addressing God, but we really aren't. We're trying to impress others and not truly seeking the presence of the Lord. This happens at times in our private prayer time too. Our hearts aren't focused. We just pray because we know it's what we're supposed to do, but we don't mean it, that we aren't approaching the throne of God in confidence that he's hearing us and he wants to commune with us. Maybe we're praying from a a written form of prayer. I think here things like the Valley of Vision or praying through one of the Psalms and our heart isn't in it. So we're just repeating words on a page. It's meaningless. It's vain repetitions. I do want to remind us here, We do not know if others are being hypocrites, but one commentator stated the warning that we may not even have an idea that we are being hypocrites, and that is the power of sin. We need to truly look at our prayer lives and determine, are we focused on the Lord and are we focused on his work in our lives and pleasing him? Are we aware that we are in the throne room of heaven? I am very aware that prayer is is challenging. Talking to God is a bit different than talking to someone who is right in front of us, someone we can see and they we respond, we get a reaction from them. Prayer is hard and it's okay to admit that, but it doesn't mean we just give up because it's a vital part of our relationship with the Lord as his children. He wants to hear from us. We know his character and we know that we always have his undivided attention. God is never too busy for us. He's always with us. We're reminded in verses like Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to not be anxious about anything, but to pray about everything, going to him, giving thanks to the Lord. Jesus um, tells us here in Luke Luke 18, 1, he begins to tell his disciples the parable of the persistent widow. And in Luke 18, 1, Jesus states that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And a favorite reminder here is 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to, to his will, he hears us. God commands us in Ephesians 6, 18 to pray at all times in the spirit and in Romans 12, 2 to be constant in prayer. So we must continue to push through the challenge that it can be at times because we're going to see as it states at the end of Matthew 6, 6 here, that there's reward in seeking the presence of God in prayer. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to encourage us a bit more to cultivate and grow in our prayer life with the Lord. Jesus is a beautiful example of one seeking God in prayer. He also prayed more in private, at least that seems to be the pattern we see in the Gospels, than he did in public. And one way for us to grow in our public prayer lives is to start with growing in our private prayer lives. And I know the struggle here with you. Sometimes it can be hard to get a moment of quiet to truly focus our hearts fully on the Lord. You know, our minds can be wandering. There could be noises around us, whatever that might be. So I know so often during my own personal prayer time, my my mind does wander or I'm just not focused. 
And one way I found to solve this is to find a room in my home where I can close the door and pray to the Lord. It's not necessary. And sometimes I don't do it. If I'm in a room by myself and there's no one else there, I don't need to do that, obviously. But it has been a help to me in talking to the Lord. Basically, I'm telling you to find a place to be undistracted and alone. Writing out my prayers to the Lord is another way I keep focused during my prayer time. And also praying out loud when I do pray, it helps me immensely. And if it's a struggle when you first start, keep pressing on because the more time you spend in prayer with the Lord, the easier the conversation with Him flows. Focus on Him and Him alone and speak to Him. It's as simple as that. But I know this is where the difficulty lies at times for us all in staying focused and in remembering we're speaking to the God of the universe who created all things that we in that moment when we are in a posture of prayer to him that we have his ear and he is listening to us. Albert Barnes stated on this verse he said pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He said the meaning of the savior is that there should be some place where we may be in secret where we may be alone with God. There should be some place to which we may resort where no ear will hear us but his ear and no eye can see us but his eye. Unless there is such a secret place, he continues, secret prayer will not be long or strictly maintained. And Oswald Chambers says, God is in secret and he sees us from the secret place. He does not see us as other people do or as we see ourselves. When we live in a secret place, it becomes impossible for us to doubt God. We become more sure of him than of anyone or anything else. Enter in the secret place and you will find God was right in the middle of your everyday circumstances all the time. So I grab both those quotes from Susan, Susan J. Heck's study on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a really good one to work through. I know I've recommended it quite a few times here. I'll try to remember to link to it. As we grow in our private prayer life with the Lord, my friend, this will be such a help in our public prayer life. Authentic prayer in public is going to come out of our authentic prayer life in private. So be persistent and consistent and just continue to come before him in prayer. And as you do grow in your private prayer with the Lord, you're going to find the conversation with him continues all throughout your day. This is where we find ourselves praying without ceasing. It's just going to become a natural part of your life. Things like when you've stopped and just in the nick of time and in a, as you're driving the car before you hit somebody, you just missed having an accident, you're going to in that moment just pray, thank you, Lord, for watching over me. Or maybe you pass an accident on the freeway and you're praying for those people. When you need to have a challenging conversation with someone, you pray, Lord, give me the words and the wisdom and the insight and a listening heart. Help me point them to you. And then you make that phone call. When you're in a hurry and you're finding impatience is welling up inside you as you're about to dress your kiddos, you pray, Lord, love is patient and kind. Please help me to be patient and kind in my response to them. So my friend, if we're in Christ, if we have been born again, if we have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we always have the ear of our Heavenly Father. He desires a close relationship with us, and this for sure is one of the rewards we receive. One of the most wonderful rewards of prayer is that we can be in constant communion with God. Answered prayer is another reward. And then this may also refer to rewards that we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. But the reality here is that our good God listens and he answers our prayers. And that truly, that is reward enough for us. 
So as we move down here now to Matthew 6, 7, and 8, which Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it reads, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we touched briefly on vain repetitions just a little earlier, and we must not confuse this with praying often for something. I think here things like the salvation of our loved ones, right? That is on our minds all the time. The parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow in Luke 18 is super helpful, and I loved what a, what a particular a commentator stated on this particular passage. He says, Does this mean we must never engage in persistent prayer, fervently beseeching God? Not at all. The teaching of the parable is that we must continue in our prayers, even when there seems to be no answer, because God, unlike the unjust judge, he's, God is loving and good and gracious. We persist in prayer, not because we have not yet gotten God's attention, but because we know he cares and he will hear us. There are also three things to remember here. Our God knows what we need before we ask. Second, we know that he hears us. And third, we know that he will answer. Maybe different than we expect or our timing, but we know that he will answer. What about when we're praying and God is silent or we think he's silent? Oswald Chambers, he helps us here. He says some prayers are followed by silence because they're wrong. Others because they are bigger than we can understand. It will be a wonderful moment for some of us when we stand before God and find that the prayers we clamored for in early days and imagine were never answered have been answered in the most amazing way and that God's silence has been the sign of answer. Just a few other thoughts on silence or seeming unanswered prayer to us. It, it really, it might be things like to instill our dependence on God. When we have nowhere else to turn to but to God in prayer, it truly, truly, we know this, it cultivates dependence on Him. In my life, my times of deepest prayer and dependence on God have come about from trials, and that's where I can give thanks in and through them. Ponder the words of this commentator on the silence of God. He said, sometimes... The silence is a delay to allow our prayers to mature. If God had answered our prayers according to our schedule, our prayers would not have been honored by the Spirit for our greater good and His glory. So friend, our Heavenly Father knows everything from beginning to end, and He knows what we are going to bring to Him in prayer. He knows the motives behind our prayers. Our prayers show a complete dependence on Him. Warren Wiersbe stated on this on this question that comes about so often, why pray if he already knows our needs? And he says, because prayer is the God-appointed way to have these needs met. He references James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 there. He says, prayer prepares us for the proper use of the answer. If we know our need and if we voice it to God, trusting him for his provision, then we will make better use of the answer than if God forced it on us without our asking. And Matthew Hill stated, he said, as a father knows the needs of his family, yet teaches them to ask in confidence and trust, so does God treat his children. So our Heavenly Father, he knows us and our hearts and our frame and our weaknesses and everything we truly need. So it's a great comfort to go to such a perfect, loving, and merciful Father to take every one of our cares and petitions and needs. So we've already worked through a little bit of the right and wrong ways to pray, not praying with the wrong motives to be seen and praying in secret before the Lord, not using vain repetitions, but coming to the Lord with our concerns with sincerity of heart. And now we move where our Lord gives us a beautiful pattern for our prayer. Luke um, chapter 11, verse 1, voices a request that we all have. 
It reads, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And friends, our good and gracious God, he did that. So we're going to move into the Lord's Prayer next. I'm going to read the whole prayer. I know I did it earlier. I'm going to do it again. And then we're going to work through it a verse at a time. One note before I read it. This is the Lord's pattern for prayer, but not one that he would have prayed. It was said that a sinless Christ could never pray this prayer in its entirety because that last part, right? It includes a petition for the forgiveness of sins, but it is prayer that is beneficial for all those in Christ to use as a model for prayer. So our first, as I read it, listen here, our first three requests have to do with God's glory and the last three requests are for our good. So think there first, our eyes are on God first and then our eyes are on us. It is truly the perfect pattern to use in our public and private prayer lives. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right, I'm not digging into this as deeply as I could or would like to with you. But just a reminder again, I'm going to share some helpful resources in the main show notes if you'd like to study this text a bit more on your own. Kevin DeYoung's book on the Lord's Prayer and Martin Luther's classic called A Simple Way to Pray are two that come to my mind that would be on the top of my list there. So first off, who are we praying to? Matthew 6, 9 reads, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is an interesting note that referencing God as Father, I was really intrigued by this, so that's why I'm sharing it with you. It only occurred 14 times in the Old Testament. And when the term was used, it was in reference to the nation and not to individuals. So when Jesus comes, he only addressed God as Father. The Gospels alone use the word Father to reference God more than 60 times. And Jesus used the Aramaic word for Father, Abba, which is how a child would address his father. It might be translated as dearest father, a term with reverence and endearment. So this section on the Lord's Prayer and calling God Father, this would have been a bit shocking to his Jewish audience. And how about us? Do we address God as our Abba Father? Galatians 4, 6 reads, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. And Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 reads, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I want to end this particular section here on grasping God's fatherhood to the believer from the words of J.I. Packer. This is one of my favorite quotes of his, and you're probably going to see it shared on my social media this week as this post goes out, as this episode goes out. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father 
is the Christian name for God. So friend, knowing God is our father, it gives us a confidence and security that he's going to take care of all our needs and we are always safe in our father's arms. Our father in heaven is not like our earthly fathers. God is transcendent or or he's outside of humanity's full experience, perception, or grasp. He's sovereign and he surpasses all that is human. Human. So he he's unlike our earthly fathers. He is, as one commentator stated, he always understands, he's always caring and loving, he never forgets us, and he always comes through for us. Even having the best of our earthly fathers can't compare with our Father in heaven. And the word hallowed here, it just means treated as holy or dedicated, consecrated, it's set apart, it's sanctified. It means to be set apart for God, to sanctify. J.C. Ryle explains, he says, by the name of God, we mean all those attributes through which he is revealed to us, his power, wisdom, holiness, justice, mercy, and truth. By asking that they may be hallowed, we mean that they may be made known and glorified. He says the glory of God is the first thing that God's children should desire. It's the object of one of our Lord's own prayers. In John 12, 28, he states, Father, glorify your name. John Piper reminds us, it is the purpose for which the world was created. It is the end for which the saints are called and convened. It is the chief thing we should seek, that in all things God may be praised. Martin Luther asked, how is God's name hallowed amongst us? The answer, when our life and doctrine are truly Christian. So friend, our prayer should begin with coming before the Lord as our dear Abba Father with reverence and endearment and by acknowledging who he is, by giving thanks and praise for all his wonderful attributes and begin to address him then with our petitions. Ray Steadman stated it, may the whole of my life be a source of delight to you and may it be an honor to the name which I bear, which is your name, hallowed be your name. Matthew 6.10 continues, it says, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are still keeping our focus on God here. One commentator stated it, Before we can pray, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray. My kingdom go. Kent Hughes shared on this verse, he said, First we pray for the final and ultimate establish of God's kingdom. We pray for the day when all creation will freely call him Dearest Father, Abba, there is an almost martial triumphant ring to your kingdom come. Come, O Lord. He says, second, we pray your kingdom come so we will be conformed to his will in this world. As we pray this, we hand ourselves over to the grace of God so he may do with us as he pleases. Your kingdom come in my life. Use me for your kingdom. And then third, he says, your kingdom come is a prayer that God's rule will come to others through us. It's a prayer for Christ to work his revolutionary power in a fallen world. Your kingdom come in my family, my job, my city, my nation. This is a big prayer that depends on a big God. And when truly prayed, it makes for a big life. He says, he ends here, is your life, is my life big enough to pray? Your kingdom come. End quote there. We need the reminder of Philippians 3.20 when we pray, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's will to be done in us and through us and not our own. We need to pray as George Miller stated, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. So our prayer needs to be that God's desires would be our desires 
His will would be our will, and our life would be laid down to live out submission to His will and allegiance to His kingdom. Just imagine the impact that this would have in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our churches and our families, too often in our marriages. Too often we get caught up in living out our desires and our wills instead of living for God and for Him alone. Matthew 6.11 begins the focus on our good as we petition God now, and it reads, Give us this day our daily bread. And notice here are the pronoun. The pronoun switches here from your to our. We started the prayer by seeking the Lord's affairs, and now we're switching to our own needs. Our hearts have been turned as we follow this model for prayer to seeking his glory and his kingdom. And now we move because of our hearts now having that right focus to express our dependence fully on him. We are coming before him in humility. We are now in a place to come and seek him for our own needs. Our daily bread needs to be understood as the basic necessities of life and that we're dependent on the Lord for everything. We are poor and weak and needy and we need our good God to take care of us. The God of the universe is concerned about our needs and he's going to supply them. James 1.17 reminds us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We need to be reminded that we can because that we can forget this because we have we have so much abundance in our lives. Our pastor just talked about this on Sunday in the sermon. We can become so self-sufficient in our thinking that we work and we provide our own clothes and food and homes, but we forget that everything we have, everything, our, our talents, our health, our possessions, our jobs, our families, everything we have is from the Lord. It's all a gift from him. Our text in Matthew 6, 11 starts with a supplication with the word give. It's recognizing before the Lord that we have a need and we come before him to ask him and to trust him as we recognize his past provision and current provision and his future provision. God never, never, we can get tired, but God never tires of asking, of us asking him for our needs. We may get tired, you may get tired of having your children come before you with your needs. Our good God is perfect and not sinful like us, and he never tires us of asking for our needs. Jesus commands us in Matthew 7 to seek, to knock, to ask. God is glorified in our dependence on him. And again, the reminder, when we are first concerned with God's will and his kingdom, we're going to come before him with hearts that are humble, and we're going to ask in a way that's pleasing to him. The next part of this verse states, give us, not give me, okay? (laughs) We are to be praying for others. We may have our daily needs, but we need to be praying for the needs of others. The needs for the day, give us this day our daily bread, has us not asking to meet our needs for all of our days and every day, but the Lord desires us to come to him each day for our daily needs. I've shared before that I struggle with being a what-ifer. I want to know the outcome. I want to know what's ahead. Um... I'm looking forward to getting to the end of chapter six with you because the verses on being anxious and worrying about tomorrow, they call my anxious heart. Those are some of my favorites that I recite to myself. But Matthew chapter six, verse 34 seems to summarize this verse so well. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And it, it seems to be summarizing what it looks like to ask the Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We need to seek the Lord for our needs today so we will glorify him or that his name would be hallowed, right? Kevin DeYoung stated, this fourth petition teaches us a spirit of contentment, a spirit of gratitude, and a spirit of dependence. He closes his chapter on this verse stating, we glorify God by coming to him each day for daily bread. So Matthew 6, 12 reads, 
and forgive us our debts as we, as, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word for debts here in Greek is sin. It means missing the mark. We, we all have known and heard this already. It misses the mark of God's righteousness. Kevin DeYoung shared a story in his chapter on debts in his book on the Lord's Prayer. He said he remembered a pastor say years ago that you could give the secret to a good marriage in just one word. The word he gave was not money or sex or communication or even love. The word was forgive. The pastor stated, forgiveness is the key ingredient not only in marriage, but in any relationship involving sinners. I really like that. A lot of truth to that one. We need to learn forgiveness as we live in this fallen world. We need both to give it to others and to receive it from others when they're coming to us with that need. I didn't say that right, but you kind of get what I mean. I'm not saying we need to forgive ourselves. I'm saying that we need to seek others. We need to give it to others. And when they, when we've hurt them, we need to go to them and seek it. Our sin doesn't just affect our relationships with others, but it affects our relationship with our God, who is not a sinner. He never needs our forgiveness. But if we're to be in a right relationship with him, we need to come before him and confess our sins and ask him for forgiveness and repent of those sins to turn from them and walk in his ways. And notice here in this in this text here, the word debts, it's plural. We come before him asking for our many sins or debts to be forgiven. I do want to read a longer quote here on this from Kevin DeYoung. I really like this. He says, so why does Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts, and not just once, but frequently, if not daily? He says, well, for starters, we still sin. We ask for forgiveness for our debts because we never stop being debtors. But more than that, it's because Jesus wants us to relate to God, not just as a judge, but as a father. This is such an important point. We're coming to this again here, right, friend? Father. Um, he says, this is such an important point and one that sincere Christians often miss. If you think of God only as judge, then you are either innocent or guilty. You are justified or not justified. You don't think in terms of pleasing or displeasing God. You think only in terms of the legal declaration of righteous or not righteous. As important as it is to recognize that God is judge, if that's the only way you relate to him, your Christianity, it's going to become stilted and stale. And he continues here. He says, God is also our father. And that is explicitly how Jesus wants us to address him in the Lord's prayer. A good father always loves his children, but he can be pleased or displeased with them. You wouldn't go back to the judge to admit another mistake, but you would go to your father to say you're sorry. He says, when my kids do what they shouldn't do or fail to do what I asked of them, I don't want them fearing that they're going to be disowned and booted out of my family, but neither do I want them to think that their, their, their disobedience is no big deal. If they are good children and if they know I am a good father, they will come to me and acknowledge their sins and I will be eager to forgive them. He says, forgive our debts is not the cry of a frightened litigant, but of a loving child. Okay, I know that was a lot, but it just captured so well this portion of the text. I think that helps us as we are going to God to seek forgiveness, to be reminded that he's our Abba Father and we are his children and he loves us. We also have a second part of this petition in Matthew 6, 12, that we need to forgive our debtors. This part of the text is a whole episode on its own, but let's state some simple points here. Um, as people who have been forgiven much, we should be people who forgive much. And if we don't, we need to search our hearts to see if we've really experienced forgiveness. 
Forgiving someone doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. When your child is disobedient, you forgive them, but there may be consequences for their action. Thomas Watson said, forgiveness means we strive against all thoughts of revenge when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. So I want to end this verse sharing from Kevin DeYoung he, to dig a really, how did I do that? Yeah, I before I do that, I want to share, I have an episode on forgiveness. And if I don't say this now, I'm going to forget it. I think it's called Choosing Forgiveness. It's an early one. I want to say it's episode 13. I glanced at it. I didn't write it down. I'm doing that from memory. I could be totally wrong. And then also before I share this last um this quote from Kevin DeYoung. I also want to recommend a really good book on um, for on forgiveness. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. It's excellent. I'll link to all that in the show notes so um, you don't have to remember it because obviously you can see I already have issues remembering it. So <laughs> I will put that all in there for you. But Kevin DeYoung, he said, what would it look like if God treated you and your sins in the same way you treated those who sin against you? No doubt some people have hurt you deeply. God never says it's not a big deal what happened to you. Forgiveness is not saying that sin doesn't matter. You're not saying it's no big deal. You're saying God is bigger, the cross is bigger, and hell is bigger. Do not focus on what they owe. Focus on what God has already forgiven you. End quote there. So moving along here, Matthew 6.13 reads, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, not one of us is above temptation or falling into sin, and we need to be reminded when seeking the Lord in prayer to ask his protection and provision to keep us from sin. We need to remember that. We are in a bad place if we think we are above falling into temptation. You are in a bad place. So don't ever find yourself saying, I would never do that, okay? Don't do that. Um, In this particular verse, we have a negative, the lead us not, and a positive, deliver us from the evil one. So we know that God is not behind tempting us, as it states in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. He himself tempts no one. On this fallen earth, we are always going to have temptations of sin to deal with, right? The word here for temptation can mean causing us to sin, or it also can mean our faith is being tested or dealing with trials. One commentator translated this verse. He said, do not allow us to come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us and cause us to sin. So temptation is good for us because it strengthens our walk and dependence on the Lord. It matures us spiritually. Many of the great saints today became who they are because of the great trials and temptations they walk through. James James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. I'm getting a little tongue twisted here. Sorry. Our prayers need to be not just deliver us from all temptation, but also to give us the grace and strength we need to not give in or be overcome by the temptation when it does come. Our flesh is weak. We need God's help in standing strong in the face of temptation and trials. And then the verse continues, but deliver us from evil. The ESV has a note, um, the ESV study Bible, it has a note on this verse that, that it being translated as the evil one might be a bit more probable than just evil. So your translation may have the evil one. 
we know that the devil is real. My husband just preached a couple weeks ago at our church on 1 Peter 5, 8, that verse that reads, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I will link to that. It was such a good reminder, friend, that we do have an enemy who is out to get us as believers. He doesn't want, the devil does not want our families and marriages and churches to flourish. He does not. James 4, 7 reminds us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Actually, I have, it's kind of when you hear that resist the devil, my husband pointed this out and I'm going to flub it here because I'm just winging this one, but it doesn't say run for the devil or yell at the devil. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. We do this by submitting to the word of God. Just as in Jesus, Matthew 4, resisted the devil with the word of God in the wilderness, we don't need to fear him. The Lord is our rock and refuge and protection, and God has given us the power to stand firm in the faith. So praying to the Lord to deliver us from the temptation and power of the devil, it also needs to be a part of our daily prayer to the Lord. So before I move to the closing verses, I want to address the doxology that you might have here in your Bible translation. If you notice, every time I read this to you, I did not read this, but it reads in a lot of translations, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this verse doesn't appear in any of the oldest manuscripts for the, for the gospel of Matthew. And many believe this doxology wasn't part of the original Lord's prayer. There was one scholar on the Lord's prayer. He stated, he said the doxology was included because of the Jewish custom of ending all daily prayers with a brief doxology. He believes that the Jewish Christians in Syria began to repeat the Lord's Prayer daily with the customary addition of a doxology, finally adding it to their version of their New Testament, which then influenced other ancient versions. So whatever, whatever the case may be, it's not a wrong thing to insert it at the end of our Lord's Prayer when you're praying through it. If we remember the Lord's Prayer as a model for prayer, and then there isn't anything wrong with an additional praise at the end of it, especially with that praise basically saying, because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's a good thing, right? And just when we think we're done, we have two more verses to work through here that seem a bit odd here at the end. Let me read them to you. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We seem to have here almost a repeat of verse 12. And Jesus is not stating here that our salvation is works-based or that it's based on us forgiving others. But what he is saying is in line with what we have been working through in this whole series together, this whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. If we are truly citizens of the kingdom, it's going to be evident in the lives we live. And one aspect of that life in Christ, and a huge one, is do we forgive others? We've been forgiven of a debt we can never repay. We need to forgive others always, always with the simple reminder that we have been forgiven much by our Heavenly Father. And because of His forgiveness in our own lives, we can now forgive much. Susan Heck stated it very simply and beautifully. Genuine believers forgive, hypocrites do not. So let me share a couple of verses here. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And Mark eleven twenty six says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And Ephesians 4, 32, one of my favorites here, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving comes out of the continual reminder that God first forgave us and now we can forgive others. 
it comes back to the question we walked through at the very beginning of this sermon when we started. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The first beatitude is the key to all that has been following, right? There is a purposeful order to the beatitudes listing in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They are qualities of all true Christians. True Christians are humble and broken before God. They know they are sinners who seek his mercy. They desire to learn about the Lord because they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're pure in heart, merciful, peacemakers, and they rejoice even when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. By God's grace, they have been transformed. These are the ones who are to inherit the kingdom, those who humbly and meekly seek after the Lord. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who realize and confess their spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. So we walk through the Lord's pattern for prayer. We started with the right and wrong ways to pray, and we moved into the model for prayer that we what? We first have our eyes on God and who he is, and then we can rightly have our eyes on our needs from him. And as I stated at the very beginning, it truly is the perfect pattern to use in our private and public prayer lives. As we pray to the Lord, be reminded he is our Abba Father who loves us and cares for us. In Christ, we are his children through adoption. Be reminded he is holy. So begin your time in prayer, acknowledging him and giving him the praise and glory he so deserves. We desire to live lives that reflect his glory to others, and we desire to have his will be in line with our will and to live for his kingdom. We also know we are a needy people, so we come before him with our requests and asking him to grant us hearts that seek repentance and that we have hearts to forgive others. We want to be delivered from evil. And all this, all this is to be done with a heart of humility, which is the proper posture to come before him in prayer. And we can do that either by standing, sitting, or kneeling. Humility just reminds us that he is the potter and we are the clay. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it so simply, if we only realize that we are approaching God, everything else would be all right. And that's so true, my friends, because Jesus truly is enough always. My dear friend, thank you so much for your extended time here with me today. It was long, but I pray it was edifying in your walk with the Lord. I know my time studying was a huge blessing to me in my walk with the Lord. I do have a few other resources on prayer at the blog. I have a post of my top 10 books I recommended on prayer, and then I have an episode on prayer in the Spiritual Discipline series, and I'll link to them both. The full show notes are at the blog, thankfulhomemaker.com, and always, always, if I've missed sharing a link or book and you can't find it, just shoot me a message and I'll get it to you. If the podcast has been a blessing to you, please, if you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen, and I would so greatly appreciate it. And my dear friend, I am so grateful for you, and I do pray that you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.